Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Yeah. So, uh, item, uh, we need to have a conversation about the mood of the British Parliament, the bumps in the road ahead and whatnot. I'm sorry, I don't, this uh, situation here is, is this it? No offense, son, but I mean, you look like you should still be at school with your head down a fucking toilet. Uh, your first point there, the offense, I'm afraid I'm going to have to take it. Your second point, I'm 22, but uh, item, it's my birthday in nine days, so to make you feel more comfortable, we could wait. Don't get sarcastic with me, son. We burnt this tight ass city to the ground in 1814, and I'm all for doing it again. Starting with you, you frat fuck. I was led to believe I was attending the war committee. Yes, Assistant Secretary of State Linton Barrick asked me to brief you on the work of the future planning committee. I'm away. This week on Multipolarity, something a bit different. We want to map the DC brain from the inside. Somewhere inside the Washington Beltway is an amorphous cabal of very smart people who often think alike, sometimes called the Deep State, other times the Blob, the Permanent Government, or even the Swamp, be they ensconced in Foggy Bottom at the State Department, or at the Pentagon, CIA, other parts of the federal government, or at think tanks or even at the New York Times and Washington Post, they have been tasked with projecting the global power of the world's greatest empire. They make decisions. Somebody has to. And just as France has its Enarch, or China has its unique Mandarin examinations, the foreign policy bureaucracy of America have a common culture, a particular education, and a singular mindset. Yet it is so common, so super-dominant in our Western world, we seldom think to question its priors. This week, to explore this subject, we're lucky enough to be joined by the very model of the modern wonk general, Carlos Roa. Carlos is a visiting fellow at the Danube Institute and a contributing editor at The National Interest, an award-winning publication focusing on defence news, national security, military affairs and hardware, foreign policy and US politics, where Carlos was formerly executive editor. Previously, he was associate editor at Horizons, the Journal of International Relations and Sustainable Development. His research focuses primarily on geoeconomics, history, and the effects of technology on institutions and societal development. His writing has been published in Newsweek, Real Clear Politics, The Spectator, The National Interest, The American Interest, Quadrant Horizons, The American Conservative, and Asia Times, among others. We're going to use Carlos's experience of being an insider to chart the anthropology of the Washington Deep State, to find out what it is to be part of the Washington power elite, how you get started, what schools you go to, what parties you go to, who you meet, and the fundamentals of the shared worldview they regurgitate to each other. So this episode is a rake's progress, if you will. How you get ahead in DC, who you need to step on, who you need to step around to get to the top of the greasy pole, 
we'll also talk about how the system actually works and where it's all gone wrong. So, Carlos, uh, you have the enviable uh, role today of the uh, Weberian ideal type of the DC insider. So I suppose we should uh, start at the start, which is customary in Anglo-speaking countries. Um, and maybe you could tell us how how people get interested in becoming part of this uh, collective and um, possibly, you know, where they get started, what schools they go to and so on. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Uh, to re- get our into the question, usually you need to be a weirdo. I mean, my experience was in high school, I was the kid who sat down in the library to read The Economist to see what's going on in Chad or lace book developments here and there rather than going outside and playing football. But where things really take off is in university. And here it's already, you're judged on where you went to. There's this notion that you can go to any university in the country and they can somehow leverage your way to D.C., either in Congress or this and that. And to an extent, that's true. But for foreign policy, defense, intelligence, and all the deep state-ish fields, you're really judged if you went to a handful of schools with unique traits. These tend to be Georgetown School of Foreign Service, the George Washington Elite School of International Affairs, the Fletcher School at Tufts University, the Princeton School of Public and National Affairs, so on and so forth. These institutions have various benefits that normal universities don't have. First is location, especially in Washington, D.C., because then they're close to the action. Some of your professors may be just adjuncts who doesn't sound that nice, but they're experienced and they're active now. My own experience, I went to Georgetown. I was taught, amongst others, by Mount Albright, former Secretary of State, uh, a shall go unnamed professor who was a senior advisor to former Secretary of Defense under Reagan. And this is the funnest one. I was taught intelligence and technology by a former CIA officer who we learned two years ago actually ran the uh, agency side of an op- operation with Crypto AG, which was this whole thing where the CIA ran a nominally dependent cryptography company that sold machines to third world countries, but it's actually a CIA front. So you have access to these people who teach you, but you start learning how they think, what the DC mentality is like, very pro-United States, pro-unipolar order, and all that. They become your mentors, your teachers, they drop references. On top of that, and you start being such in this whole elite culture way of thinking, these universities have all these resources and, and prestige that benefit your career. So you hang out with your peers at these various small clubs. In Georgetown, we had the Georgetown Journal of National Affairs, the National Relations Club, and so on and so forth. So you're already in a tight group with your fellow, you know, would-be future lead cadre interacting and having seminars together, guest speakers, going to events, so on and so forth. So really, there is a shared culture in these elite schools of you bring prepped, you have access to better than average courses, the rest of the country, rest of universities, and it all builds into the same milieu of we're going to do this and advance our careers. And what sort of background do uh, people who go through this process come from? I mean... Obviously, they're going to these elite schools, but uh, I mean, do they all come from 
you know, very similar background, say upper middle class, uh, have had parents in um, similar careers in the past, or is there more of a meritocratic uh, selection process where people from a diversity of backgrounds, and by diversity, I don't mean the modern sense of uh, skin color or, or gender or sexuality. I mean, the, the kind of the old fashioned sense. I mean, do you get many you know, bright kids from working class backgrounds going through this, or is it mostly um, people who are, I guess, as we would say in Britain, to the manner born? On average, I would say it's more to the manner born. There are a few cases of working class kids who work their way into institutions. They did well in school, rice curriculars. They did well in the SAT, ACT tests, and so on. But when they get to these universities, this is where they start encountering the sort of cultural material material barrier. Can you afford to go to these parties with your with your peers? Yes or no? Are you prepared for high intensity examinations, how to write papers, and so on and so forth? And this is why you start noticing in some institutions kids who drop out because if they can't afford it, they have to get scholarships. If they can't meet the scholarship requirements, then they tail down their ambition. So. On average, they tend to be more upper middle class or upper class students. So there really is a tendency towards groupthink because of this. And and would you say just very quickly that the disproportionate number of them are actually from the kind of DC Baltimore area, the 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 Beltway, as it were, or from families that are from there? I don't know that for sure, but if they're in the D.C. schools, the Georgetown, George Washington, John Hopkins, Sice, et cetera, a good, I would say like a third or good amount of them tend to be from the, from the area, usually because their parents either did national affairs or some adjacent field. Okay, so then in the universities themselves, like what sort of things are being taught? I mean, you've obviously said that there's, you, you've very much so clearly formulated what the milieu is and how the kind of lore and so on is passed down. But what are people actually being taught? Are they being taught macroeconomics? Are they being taught international relations? What's the, what's the deal? Generally, they'll get the, you know, the, uh, they'll get the basics, introduction to international relations, macroeconomics, comparative politics. But then at some point, Usually around later senior, uh, later sophomore year, early junior year, you need to start specializing. So you want to, you have to have a good foreign language, especially when you want to do foreign policy or strategy, technology, so forth. So it really depends on what you want to do. But in these schools, you have, due to the uh, availability of resources and professors, the leeway to do whatever you want. So if you want to do Russian foreign policy as a class, you can do that. Or the former politics and and uh, foreign policy is Soviet Union as an option. Middle Eastern comparative political systems that's an option. Vast array of options. So really, you have the chance and opportunity to specialize in what you want. And these tend to be taught by former officials or former specialists who know what they're doing, what they're doing, or are still actually involved in these fields. So once you've gone through the kind of the college process and the postgrad college process and you've attended the right parties and and shown that you have the right level of uh, verbal acuity and uh, are able to say the right things and to amuse the right people, what are the next steps for the uh, aspiring member of the deep state? 
where do they go after that? Are, you know, are we talking about um, think tanks? Are we talking about being uh, the kind of the advisor to a congressman who sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee? Um, are we talking about a, kind of a special advisor who sits and runs sub-Saharan Africa for the CIA? Where do they go and how does it work out? The way I to describe it is, in practice, DC works like a modern-day extension of the medieval guild system. In that, you know, you start as a young apprentice, you're assigned to study under a master, you do, you know, part of my language when you sort of the, the shit detail, you run his coffee, you help sum up his notes, help write an article with him, this and that. And the key factor is you're learning at this official or experienced official's feet. Like he was former, let's say, envoy to sub-Saharan Africa, et cetera. And now you're helping coordinate his meetings, do basic research for an article you want to do, et cetera, and you start learning through this. So this process can be done in think tanks, which is, you know, the average case, but also whether in government, journalism, whichever field. What really matters is under who are you working with and are you learning stuff? And in that capacity, what are you doing outside of the job? Are you attending fellowships? Are you going to write parties? No working. For example, here's just a general, you know, suggested course. Let's say you finish school and you somehow manage to get a good fellowship. For example, the, uh, the Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellowship, which puts you for six to nine months at a think tank of more or less your choice. You can swing it. There you, under, you work under a senior fellow or senior scholar, gain more experience on, let's say, you're doing China policy. And from there, with this on your brain, you can apply to another think tank as a research assistant. Then next, next year, you write an article, this and here, get published, promote to research associates, you start getting a better idea of how things actually work. Right. So I guess it's like, you know, whenever I watch any US TV drama that involves the law, there's always some bright young thing who's being interviewed, and it turns out that they interned under ex-Supreme Court justice. And that's a kind of something that's impressive on the CV. Uh, and it's and and what you're saying is it's the same when it comes to the foreign policy, um, kind of permanent foreign policy state within Washington that you kind of intern under these individuals. And as you're interning, you're not just gaining experience from that; you're also doing a range of fellowships or or other activities, and at the same time, you're building a network. You're going to lunch with the right people. You're attending parties, or you're, you're frantically seeking invite to the right parties. Uh, and at the same time, and through all that, you're building a, a kind of a body of experience, um, you know, the right kind of connections to leverage that experience. Uh, and also, you have, to a certain degree, the patron, uh, patronage of somebody who's already experienced within the system. That's very much the case. And, and I kind of need to emphasize this, if you really want to do foreign policy, defense and security, the whole thing, you're either writing or you're improving your writing. Part of this is because Washington DC is not, you know, it's a town of a, a few million, et cetera. But when it comes to decision-making and influencing policy, it really is only a few thousand, a few 10,000 individuals. And they all, read each other or see each other and so forth. If you want to, so if you can get your article, let's say you write a good article or essay and it gets into foreign policy magazine, national interest, foreign affairs, Washington Post, et cetera, 
the odds of you being read by a fellow person in policymaking or from policy analysis is pretty high. So it, it, what happens is over time, you start seeing people who really start believing, and this is part of the DC mentality, that reality can be shaped just by what they write. Because their, let's say their idea gets pushed, it gets pushed far enough, next thing you know, it's policy. Some policymaker adopted it. So there comes this, this latent belief that governing becomes just the correct manipulation of words. And you can manipulate words in just the right way and get them appear in just the right place, you're affecting reality itself. Yeah, so that's really interesting because that's kind of um, one of the things that I've sensed that, you know, of, of course, it's never been said explicitly, but it's one of the things that I've felt with regards to the way that uh, Washington, D.C. has operated in the last, um, you know, 22 months since the beginning of uh, 2022 or even the end of 2019 is, um, uh, you know, a sense that really what counts is the narrative rather than reality. It's, it's, it's how we explain the narrative. But I wonder that, you know, you know within the process of, uh, uh, of studying at these, um, these schools, which are, you know, they're not just elite, they're very kind of specific and very focused on a specific area. So within studying at those, but especially the, the kind of the apprenticeship a process that you have just explained. How much space is there for intellectual diversity? For instance, you know, for instance, you know, if, if you're a student and you, you know, after after studying foreign affairs or international relations or, or, or some facet of that, if you come to view the world through a realist framework if if that's how you start viewing the world in events and start kind of uh projecting into the future or forecasting the future um how much room is there for that and 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 would somebody like that be able to secure an internship or or or, or get into the apprenticeship process or is it very much a self-selecting uh, process where kind of liberal universalists or liberal interventionists or neoconservatives, whatever we want to call them, um, you know, do they self-select for people who see the world like they do, or do the students start kind of um, viewing the world like that because they know it's the only way to get ahead in their chosen field? So this is uh, this is funny because. The National Interest is probably the, the main realist publication in town, and I'm a realist, so I had to go through this entire process myself. On average, it's more the latter case that you described, which is students start tailoring their views to the views of the system or superiors institutions, and from there, institutions kind of pick and choose. But part of this is because of the career and economic incentives of how the entire thing works, which is DC, at the end of the day, despite pretensions otherwise, has a limited amount of resources and a limited amount of tension to dedicate to the entire world of issues. You look at it right now, we have the war in Ukraine, the Israel-Gaza situation, Taiwan in the background, the recent flip in Guyana, and all these other issues. Policymakers in DC, the White House Situation Room, Etc. cannot dedicate the same amount of resources and attention to all these issues. 
So there is an incentive in, you know, if you were policy analyst, wonk, whatever, you were incentivized to really sell your pet cause if you do inflate the threat, because that way you get more attention to your cause, to your career path. So I, I guess the question that comes to my mind when I hear about the kind of structure, which doesn't wholly surprise me, having followed some of these publications, is that... Um, what you're describing sounds like it's actually quite resistant to change because if you publish something in one of these publications that's way out of left field and isn't in keeping with the rest of the narrative, it it it'll be like a kind of a it'll be like an, a Martian or something landing and trying to speak Martian. People just won't comprehend it. Is is that the case or is kind of um out of the box thinking uh respected? To address the first half, usually yes, if you do out of the box thinking People aren't dumb. They understand where you're coming from. But the issue is it attacks the various incentives and, you know, the status quo. For example, there's an article that kind of got a lot of buzz in 2021. It was called, you know, this is a very provocative title, Give the U.S. Navy the Army's Money. Now, the basic argument was if we're going to focus on China, then China, this is mostly a maritime issue. It's We need to have focus on the Navy, get more submarines and ships. It's not going to be any use to have a Bradley tank, you know, or this man Bradley tanks when fighting China. What happened? Suddenly you have all these army individual officers in the Pentagon or a think tank say, you can't say that, you know, we need the army for X, Y, Z reasons. Similar, you have all these congressmen say, you can't cut the army, we need it for X, Y, Z reasons. Those congressmen may have factories or whatever, you know, special interests within their, their districts or... They receive money from the defense contractors who also don't want to see whatever weapon platforms be cut. So if you propose a certain reform, you need to be prepared to, to receive the fury of all the various interests, note of power, or entrenched bureaucracies that exist to support that interest. Yeah, funnily enough, actually, I wrote a, um, a, an essay on material economic uh, value of materiel for American affairs. And I did notice that new people were appearing on my Twitter who seemed to have a, a very set interest in maintaining the U.S. Navy. Um, so, what, I mean, what would you see as the mix of forces there? Obviously, um, I mean, we could almost say that it's kind of Marx versus Hegel in a way that are the ideas dominating or really is the is the incentive structure just completely overpowering the ideas? My view is the incentive structure works or is or powering the ideas more often than not. I mean, to give another example, the foremost realists in DC these days, like senior most, are the guys over at the Marathon Initiative, which is a think tank co-run by Elbridge Colby and A. West Mitchell. Colby's grandfather was CIA director. He himself is former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. He wrote, he helped uh, lead the writing of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. So literally, what is the US military's strategy for defense? As for Mitchell, former Assistant Secretary of State for European Eurasian Affairs and the author of, I think it was, The Grand Strategy of the Habsburg Empire. So quite literally, the expert on how the Austro-Hungarian Empire worked, i.e. an empire that's cash-strapped, military meh, surrounded by rivals on all sides, multicultural empires, and you still do diplomacy to survive. So these guys are the smartest in town, the foremost realist advocates in town, but even then, you notice that when they argue in public, they have to carefully tailor their words to not upset people because they themselves have pure aspirations. They want to be Secretary of Defense and this and that. And you can't jeopardize your confirmation hearing 
before the Senate if you start saying things like we need to cut the military by X amount of X amount. More specific example, Wes Mitchell recently wrote an article called, quote, America is a heartbeat away from a war could lose, which, you know, sounds pretty sensible. You, it's military's overstretched. But then you start getting to the actual word of the article and you start seeing things that just don't make sense. He says, you know, if China attacked Taiwan, the U.S. would be hard-pressed to rebuff the attack while supporting Ukraine and Israel. Then he says, this is not because the U.S. is in decline. Now, wait a second. We, we're in an environment where we see in the news headlines, the industrial base is weak. We can't support Ukraine with artillery. We have less money than we did. So how can you not say the U.S. is in decline? Or even further down in the article, you start, you start seeing we need to increase the military budget. With what money? We already have inflation. We need to support all these other things, et cetera. Where's money going to come from? And you realize this is be, the, the, they're phrasing the art, these articles this way because they, have, they need to defend their own position and their own interest in the long term. You can't say it out loud, we need to cut the military by half to support our current material conditions and the reality in front of us. Doing that would endanger their own positions. And this is, just an, this is just one example, but this dynamic exists throughout any realists you see in D.C. Stepping point to get to the point at which our, you know, deep state careerist, so I think that's like, a good, uh, reaches real power. So we've moved from a university through the apprenticeship process to uh, progressing through the kind of like the think tank, uh, the think tank industrial complex. Um, let's move on to real power. You mentioned, you know, congressional confirmation hearings. I think that's something that perhaps uh, certainly people in Britain, uh, but listeners elsewhere in the world might not grasp as an important part of the career of, uh, say, a career diplomat or national security advisor or or anybody in the international relations and 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 a trade um, sectors within the U.S. federal government because. Of course, in Britain, we have a, a permanent professional civil service and our ministers are just chosen, right? There's no confirmation hearings. Whereas in the United States, you don't have uh, such a, you know, you know, a lot of your kind of civil service in inverted commas or kind of state bureaucracy jobs are actually appointees by the sitting president. And those appointees uh, have to go through congressional hearings where they're cross-examined by senators. So do you want to just kind of explain that process, explain how their past and history affects those hearings and therefore their ability to uh, get a job in kind of real power in inverted commas and the sort of areas into which they move? There is you know, the permanent bureaucracy in, in these various institutions, departments, etc. But usually the senior positions or the Advisors to senior positions tend to be appointed by Congress. And there are, like, I believe it's over 9,000 positions. There's actually a, uh, every four years, there's a whole document that kind of lists out the entire everything called the Plum Book, P L U M. And getting appointed, it, again, it says, depends upon a congressional uh, appointee and being approved means you need to negotiate, you need to have a pass a political career path that can meet expectations. You didn't say anything or do anything radical. If you did, you can defend it in some way or other. And you need to have good relations with congressmen, senators, et cetera, or have these be managed on your behalf by the administration or others. So really, if you want to be a senior most official 
you have a clean nose, clean background, you didn't raise too much of a fuss, and you have strong political backing. So this creates a, an environment where you really don't want to rock the boat too much because you don't want to have that one congressman whose district has so-and-so whatever be coming after you. And would that be coming after you based on maybe a position that you took in a foreign policy article somewhere or on a kind of a personal political basis? Any or above. That's the issue. So really, it is kind of a liability then to publish anything controversial if you aim at a higher status, in effect. Pretty much, yes. If you are senior enough, important enough, you have some you know, room to finagle, but otherwise, you take a risk if you go really out of bounds. Now, I was just going to say, you know, to put this into um, language that perhaps people can understand because it's current, if you were at a think tank which hugely criticized the current administration's Ukraine policy. Um, and, you know, re if you published a paper or maybe a, an op-ed in the Washington Post or, or produced a, a, a paper at a think tank that really kind of went after that policy, um, you know, in two or three years, you could have Lindsey Graham coming after you at a congressional uh, um, uh, appointment hearing right pretty much yes it, it, again, it also depends on the context if the ukraine war is still ongoing you know in three years then they'll be coming after they'll come after you for being defeatist or potentially a russian sympathizer or you say things about the budget's not true etc if the war ends a certain way they can probably try to argue like well actually i was right and you defend it in that case so it depends also on the on the context but really because of this on average you want to have your back covered so the incentives for causing a fuss and asking deep questions of, you know, concerns, they're not aligned with, you know, with your, with your career. Just to circle back slightly on what we've already discussed, is this made clear to people even when they're at university or do they kind of just get it from watching the process? It's a mix of you get it from watching the process or you're told by someone, you know, not exactly Simply told, but you know, kind of like, like hinted, hey, you shouldn't want, you shouldn't say that something because that might affect some, this and that. But it's never formally stated. It's much of a, of a culture. You kind of start realizing how it works just from watching what everyone else is doing. You don't, it's also just the economics of how things work. For example, let's say you are a junior staff guy focusing on, we specialize in Middle East counterterrorism insurgencies stuff. You now you, you raise some challenging views, and suddenly, let's say ISIS is defeated, and a few years later, the Afghan withdrawal, and now there's much less of a need for all these counterterrorism experts. So fewer jobs, and you can't find one. What do you do? Well, after a certain time of job searching, you bite the bullet and accept a less prestigious post at a defense contractor as a technical analyst or a translator and so on, which it's a job, but you're out of the game. You're, you're now stuck in a medium, low prestige job. And you want to get back in. Speaking of how the system works, I think this is a really good time to move from the kind of the career process where you have uh, expensively educated, motivated pe young people who you know, gain some expertise through education, uh, gain more expertise and more importantly, a network and patronage through an apprenticeship process and climbing onto the career ladder. And then eventually these people move into 
uh, various forms of political power or gain more power and seniority within the uh, think tank system or, you know, perhaps even, you know, within various parts of the intelligence community or elsewhere in the federal government. But I think... Or you cycle back out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, and and that's an important point that we need to cover because I think when when people look at the way that DC works, or or let's say when I look at the way that DC works from a position of, um, you know, a fair degree of ignorance... I see something where I, I I get an impression of how this whole system works, and it's a kind of it's quite amorphous, quite nebulous, and it's very much multi multimodal. There are multiple points of power within the system, and each of those points might have individual kind of uh, power structures within them. And as we said right at the top of the show when we were introducing it, it, it you know it covers not just kind of political appointees within the federal government. It, it doesn't just cover kind of at the top secretaries of state and presidents, but it also covers other federal employees, whether it be at the CIA or the NSA or various parts of the um, the uh, defense sector, the Pentagon or the you know defense intelligence. But it also covers things like think tanks. It covers things like journalists at, at, at some of the newspapers of record, like the Washington Post and the New York Times. and this seems to be a net, very much a network, and the people there seem to be quite interchangeable. You know, one day you could be a speechwriter on foreign policy for the uh, Secretary of State or the National Security Advisor. Uh, the next day you could be running your own think tank. Uh, the next day you could be, you know, writing op-eds for the New York Times, and then the next day you could be, you know, National Security Advisor yourself. Right? It's a kind of you know, it's very much a revolving door. Certainly we saw that during 2008, 2009 in the global financial crisis and the revolving door between government, the regulatory authorities and the investment banks. But how does that work within the uh, foreign policy and trade policy structure that we're discussing this evening, Carlos? It really is a case of when you're in in government, you must execute policy or, you know, implement for implement policies that have already been formulated. When you're out of government, that's your chance to, apart from, you know, if you need to make some money, et cetera, you can go in business and so forth. But it's also a chance to refine policy and prepare policy for the next administration or prepare your job for the next administration. So to give an example, I think the best way to see this is Democratic Party, when they were outside of power during the first Trump administration. This is where you start seeing all the kind of people doing 180s on policy. For example, we had, uh, at that point, we had Jake Sullivan, who is now, is he, is, is, he's now a national security advisor. He wrote an article saying, America needs a new economic philosophy. Foreign policy experts can help. And this sort of starts laying the foundations, article-wise, what becomes the foreign policy for the middle class of the Biden administration. Or, for example, in 2018, you had a, Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner, who were at that point former Secretary of State for East Asia Pacific Affairs, and Ratner was uh, Deputy National Security Advisor for Vice President Joe Biden. There were an article that basically said, "Hey, we were wrong in China. This we need to do going on from from here on out." And now they're back in power. And now Campbell is uh, the NSC Coordinator for Indo Pacific, i.e., the White House Asia SAR. And Ratner is Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Affairs. 
So being out of government is a chance to reformulate policy, prepare for the next administration, whether it be in think tanks, journalism, or universities. But of course, that policy that you're formulating outside of government presumably is subject to the same constraints that you described earlier when you were saying about you know writing articles and 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 anticipating uh, for the the future congressional hearing that you might get in trouble for, right? I mean, there 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 has to be some constraints around around Jake Sullivan going out and reformulating China policy, which was obviously a huge, a huge shift, one of the biggest that we've seen. Um, maybe you could say something about those constraints. And maybe actually an interesting example would be Jake Sullivan redoing China policy, which was massive. Like what what phys- you know, what physically changed there that allowed such a, a huge about face on policy? So this is where it gets kind of the weird game of is it okay to say something? It, 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 since this isn't like, let's say, China, where you have uh, the CCP puts out the Kishu Journal, which is you know, the sort of official party journal on electoral doctrine. In D.C., so there's no, this is the official deep state line on this and that. It's a mixed game, game of, you know, signals and tells of who is saying what, how is it received, and does it make sense given the current context? Doing a 180 in China makes much more sense when you have Donald Trump go out and you know, take the, the brunt of the fire for saying, hey, we need to be tough on China now. And then Xi Jinping changes the Chinese constitution to say, I'm going to be in charge from here on out. So at that point, start realizing, okay, the China as a responsible stakeholder model doesn't seem to be working. We already have the guy in the White House pushing us ahead of us. So let's just, you know, run with where we're going, with seeing what with, and now we can, now it's allowed to change tack. We're seeing... A level of this in practice right now with, say, industrial policy and economics, which Philip can comment a lot on. We're seeing uh, the Biden administration go go all in on protectionism, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is more or less the Green New Deal in disguise. And we even see hints here and there of preparing for what comes next. For example, uh, we had a think tank, I think it was the Center for New American Studies. No, sorry, the Center for New American Security, which is possibly the most defense industry-friendly think tank in town, started putting out all these reports and essays on industrial policy and the defense space, which a few years ago didn't do at all. But with the increasing recognition of, hey, this is important, they start putting it out. You read through the reports, you know, they're fine, but you start seeing the recommendations. One, you know, one of these reports, for example, says we need to appoint a new deputy national security advisor for technology competition, or and this is the actual wording, we need to, quote, establish a cadre of U.S. tech diplomats. So you start seeing the, the plan reports preparing for, you know, a trend you know, that's going in a certain direction saying, hey, we need more jobs on this or that sector. So this actually makes a lot of sense when we talk about the fact as you just alluded to, that and we've talked about it on the show before, that the IRA is at least partly the Green New Deal uh, wearing new clothes. And of course, that that's because, as you say, these kind of um, whispers build and so on, and, you, and you're taking the path of least resistance. So if you want to get the Inflation Reduction Act done, you kind of put your finger to the wind, you lick your finger and put it to the wind, and you say, geez, this green thing is really big, and there's a lot of people over there salivating over potential tax subsidies and so on, that's a pretty you know simple, straightforward path. Whereas going down the hardcore manufacturing route, 
you know, you don't have the same kind of kind of structure in place, right? The key thing to understand, I think this has been, you know, the theme of this uh, whole podcast, you know, when I talked about this episode is DC is not a monolithic structure. It's a confederation of various tribes and war bands, so to speak, of various interest groups who don't all have, no one has the power to do everything by themselves. So it's a lot of ad hoc coalitions to get things done. We need, you know, deal with the uh, foreign policy, weak industrial base, economic problems, et cetera. So, hey, let's get the Greens together with the policy. We need to address inflation guys and all these other little interest groups and pass this reform together. But because it's such a large system with so many very interest groups and entrenched interests, it's much easier to veto stuff, say this is no good, you can't do this, you can't do that, than actually passing things. I want to ask about how things actually do get done because, you know, of course, I've actually one of the things that kind of Philip has helped me a lot with is is kind of understanding that fact within DC is that, it, you know, it's not a monolithic uh, creature, so to speak. It's, a, <clears throat> as you say, a kind of confederation of uh, competing and uh, sometimes ally ad hoc allied uh, factions and power structures. But how do things actually get done? So you know, have people in government, and uh, when they go out of government, they they use that time to kind of research and build policy ideas, which then, in turn, when their party or when the next government gets into power, they can use uh, to get themselves back into uh, the seats of power. But I assume that there needs to be um, more than that to get policy through. You've got to push it through Congress to begin with. But I assume then that Congress or congressmen and women are themselves advised by the very same people or, or, or people who come through the very same kind of think tank, former government advisor or former administration advisor, you know, former member of the federal government itself. So they're kind of advised by like-minded people and therefore, you know, policy tends to fit nicely, but also there are backdoor connections that kind of short circuit, say, the link between president and, you know, congressional leader, and they can go, you know, from special advisor to special advisor. Would that kind of be an accurate way of looking at the way things get done? That's pretty much their um, point, yeah. So you have people like, I won't name a name, but a certain... uh say, a think tank policy analyst who helped write one of, the, one of these reports, then gets a job as so-and-so senator's senior policy advisor for this and that, and he brings with him the report, which is around the office, and say, hey, we should, you know, advance this for this and that reason. Or there, or this individual meets, you know, with, you know, with his fellow former co-workers at so-and-so party, either an official party or with another, you know, third-party grouping, and they share ideas there. So it since the number of people who actually think about policy in a deep way, rather these papers, et cetera, is relatively small, especially given whatever in you know topic, whether it be China policy or industrial policy or military force structure stuff, it's a small world in each case. So you tend to get around know, know people and know what each each of those policies are. So I want to talk about something that we haven't covered so far, one aspect of this whole uh, kind of uh, amorphous network that we haven't covered yet, which for Britain certainly is quite a new phenomenon, but I think is a little bit older within the United States itself. Uh, you know, you have a longer history of philanthropy and 
connections between philanthropists and governments. But in Britain, um, a excellent political uh, journalist called Tom Mc, uh, Tom McTague uh, recently investigated and profiled the Tony Blair Institute, which was um, founded by our former Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair, and you know it's, it's quite interesting in terms of what it does. It, it's quite a I don't know, something of a black box, but apparently what they do is they provide both pro bono and and purchased policy advice, you know, in, in addition to their straight charity work, which is the sort of stuff that we would tend to associate with charity work. Um, they also offer this kind of policy service, which is sometimes pro bono, sometimes actually paid for by governments, which really tries to help governments in the third world Produces, they call it good policy. Okay, so you get all of these. It's a kind of a, a, a think tank that actually kind of sells its service at a very high level to governments in the global south, as far as I can understand, or in the emerging, in the world of emerging economies. You also have the kind of the Bill and Hillary Clinton Foundation, very famously, and there's also the the George uh, Soros. Um, I forget the name, Open something. I forget the name. You Open Society know, Foundation, I think it is. Yeah, Open Society, Found- Open Society Foundation, that's right. Um, what role do these play? Because these seem like, to me, these seem like kind of think tanks on steroids. They're not just kind of producing policy papers to circulate around kind of the Beltway in Washington or SW1 in London or in, in Brussels. These guys are at the kind of the coalface. They're, they're shaping literal legislative agendas for entire countries <laughs> um, but they also have the same people from these same schools and have done the same apprenticeships from washington and london and, 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 and other places as well and also former members of government so recently the uh recently resigned prime minister of finland recently joined the tony blair institute so what what role do these organizations play both in the setting of policy in Washington, but also Washington's ability to project its preferred policy around the world. So this is, you know, where it gets really spicy and I can get in trouble for this for this stuff. And funnily enough, I have a Tony Blair Institute story actually. Nobody's listening, Carlos. It's just you and uh, Philip and I. Just, just, just tell us everything, you know? I know, I know. Actually, you know, I'll tell you the Tony Blair story since I was there to see it firsthand. Uh, so one of my first jobs out of college was being in Belgrade for two years, working for a former UN General Assembly president. And in Belgrade, uh, the government at the time hired the Tony Blair Institute to help, you know, hey, how do we uh, advance our economy, modernize it? So what they came back with from Tony Blair Institute was we should make, we should knock down this neighborhood in Belgrade to make the Belgrade waterfront. So this was a whole idea the Tony Blair people sold to the government in Serbia. And they said, hey, you're going to knock down this whole neighborhood to build this, you know, huge, they're, you know, Dubai-esque, like, neighborhood of, of gla- you know, of new glass buildings, et cetera, for, the, uh, for rich uh, expats. Let me introduce you to the builders of Dubai, so now you have Tony Blair, you know, meeting between the government in Serbia and UAE, you know, developers to help build the entire thing. And then this led to, among other things, uh, you can look this up, uh, the 
questionable demolition of this waterfront, you know, the pre-existing buildings. By questionable, I mean midnight demolitions by men in you know, baklavas, etc. These are, as you said, kind of super think tanks that go the next step by saying, hey, we have the connections and ability to actually make a lot of policies pass through and influence things at macro scale. I think the best way to understand this, especially since a lot of it is derived from U.S. policy power, is to draw an example from, uh, have you ever seen the, I think it's the HBO series Rome? I have not. Philip might have, though. No, but just pretend we have. There is one brief episode where Hera, Tetrarch of Galilee, comes to Rome, speak to uh, Mark Anthony and says, I hear you, Roman gentlemen, you, know, you don't take bribe, absolutely not, but you do take gifts of gold, right? Yes, that's the case. Well, I'll give you a, a substantial gift of gold, and in exchange, uh, you can help me secure you know, Judea and handle you know, local problems. And Mark Anthony says, all right, just one rule, you, know, you need to keep the, you Jews and Judea in line. Okay. And then Mark Anthony says, well, congratulations, Herod. You now have the full backing of Rome. To an extent, that also happens in the super think tank world where you have senior political figures or you know, senior policy figures, et cetera, with a lot of influence say, hey, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, a generous donation to our cause and we can help make things happen. We had the president of Brookings, one of the major DC think tanks, get in trouble because turns out he got a few million from Qatar, for example, and he was trying to facilitate meetings that shouldn't happen, shouldn't be happening. Well, I'm glad to hear that the uh, think tanks run by our imperial governors are uh, are purely in it for the uh, common good. But just to go back to um, to the DC structure, in a sense, um, so what you described, I think, is a very static system. Um, it's one that changes very slowly. It's one that is is very kind of. Um, you know, a collective intelligence in a way, um, because we have all these kind of nodal points meeting with each other and making making marriages of convenience and so on. But I think maybe it would be worth worthwhile you explaining what happens when an outside interruptive force comes into that. So maybe we could think about two of those. Number one is potentially a disruptive president in the executive branch. Of course, America has had no disruptive president in the executive branch in living memory. I'm talking about Trump, obviously. And um, the second, perhaps, that we might consider as a disruptive outside force is a surprise war. Again, a, uh, a situation that we definitely haven't seen uh, recently. So um, just maybe to kind of get what, what happens when you, shake the, when you shake the nest a little bit with those two, those two external forces. You've been alive the past few years. You kind of saw what happens. You have complete resistance and kind of a shock response and trying to adjust. However, in the first case, there's an issue because you run into the problem of personnel. Yes, you can have a disruptor president, you know, in charge now, but you don't have the same number of, you know, personnel professionals to fill all the slots that think like the disruptive president or leader. I mean, yes, you can have Donald Trump, you know, and is in charge, for example, but who's going to run national security? Who's going to run as ambassador of, you know, to China? Who's going to do this and that in the NSC? And at that point, you kind of realize, oh, there is a distinct lack of unorthodox thinkers who do policy and all this. So you're forced to rely on a good amount of the people who are already there. So this is why a lot of the policies, you know, can get stymied. 
which is why Trump, despite, you know, coming with this mandate to do a lot of change, can't execute a lot of it because he has to, just there isn't a choice, appoint a number of people who are already establishment, you know, oriented or thinking or just or the experts on, on hand. As for an outside, let's say, crisis, like a surprise war, it's an attempt to adjust quickly, but again, it depends on the context of the war. Can it actually be sustained? If so, they'll try. If it can't, a lot of panicking going around. But presumably it would trigger the interest sectors that are dealing with that war. So very famously, I don't think we're telling our readers and our listeners anything, but but um, but uh, Victoria Newland was one of the main uh, players in Central and Eastern Europe, and she was promoted after the Ukraine war. I mean, I assume we see a little bit of that going on too, right? We see a little bit of that, yes. But this is the weird thing about our current moment, which is the sh- the shocks and the number of shocks and the intensity of shocks are coming in so quickly for DC. It's kind of running out of the bandwidth to address them. I and mean, this is not conspiracy. This is we have. I think it was an Axios, the uh, favorite news outlet slash newsletter for DC, saying the people in the, situation, in the White House situation room cannot keep up with the multiplicity of crisis coming in. I, I actually read that, and that was I found that quite scary because that's when people start doing stupid things, and that was before the uh, Venezuela Guyana situation, right? Correct. So this is the interesting about the about the uh, emerging multipolar environment, which is. DC is being forced to confront with the fact that it does not have endless resources or attention to address with all the fissures emerging in, this, in the current system. So it's kind of a headless chicken. What do we do? Just try to throw more money at it. That always works, right? So that's really a very good um, uh, explanation for why, I mean, obviously we're quite critical on the podcast, but I'll be frank. I mean, I see a lot of irrational poor decision-making going on in D.C., not saying that that's never been there before. We can all pick apart the Iraq war. We can all pick apart the Vietnam war. But the level of kind of um, of, of of disorientation at the moment seems intense. And you're saying because there's a fairly static system that's used to a very gradual process being hit with multiple shocks because the world is changing really fast. Exactly. Not only that, but also since, it's, since D.C. is, let's be frank, a mostly – a baby boomer run town, they have a very uh, entrenched, this is how it's always been mentality that isn't open to radical change. So, and they, but they still believe at a certain level, I mean, if you grew up in the period of American affluence, when you're making a lot, you know, when the country is getting richer and richer, you're not going to be open or you're going to be the idea that, oh, America's now much poorer, our industrial base is substantially weaker, etc. So there's still a lot of thinking coming from position of we have the money, the resources, the bottomless pit, you know, pot of money to address whatever comes our way. And they're kind of starting to realize, no, we don't. We need to print money in order to do this and this. We need to print money to pass all these COVID measures, the IRA, and suddenly we have inflation. And how do we deal with this? Uh, Print more money. So it's a lack of awareness of how much things have changed, not just in the international context, but also the domestic context, and unable to really, really grasp that we don't have the same resource base in terms of capital, after resources, industrial base, et cetera, to address problems that we did before. So it's sort of, sort of a, why isn't this working? This usually always works. Now, now it doesn't, because we don't have the same amount of resources we did before. Christ.
Christ. Yeah. What did we learn, Palmer? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. I guess we learned not to do it again. Yes, sir. I'm fucked if I know what we did. Yes, sir. It's uh, hard to say. Thank you for listening to this extended edition of Multipolarity. As 2024 closes, we're taking some time off, but we'll be back early in the new year with a Crystal Ball special. If you're on the Patreon list, we've got another half hour of Carlos Roa behind the velvet rope. If not, we'd like to thank you for listening to us in our first year of operation. Multipolarity has had a big 12 months. The concept spent 2023 forcing its way into the front of the world's newspapers. And we like to think Multipolarity, the podcast, has been upstream of that debate, helping to establish its terms. For now, Merry Christmas and a Happy New World Order.